Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Friends, welcome back to the show. Uh, today we've got a special podcast that's, it's not in Texas, it's not in America. It, Jason, why don't you come over here and introduce where we are? We, we've got a little three-person podcast, only two microphones, so it's a little bit uh, sketchy, but you know, I think we'll work. Jay, tell them where we are. Hey, we're in Nazareth, uh, in Israel, right across the street from the Church of the Annunciation, where the church celebrates Mary getting the word about Jesus. With good pronunciation, I assume. Right? Pronunci- nope. Nothing? You can say who's, you want to introduce who's here? Oh, yeah, I'd be happy to. Uh, my very good friend, Todd Dethrich. Uh, Todd is co-founder and president, executive director of uh, the Telos Group, and he's here leading our trip. We'll learn lots more about Todd, but... But you know what Todd is? He's a difference maker. And you want to know where you can learn how to become a great difference maker? Lipscomb University's Marriage and Family Therapy Program. Isn't that a good plug? See that natural, Todd? That's awesome. You can jump in on this. Love that. That's awesome. That that, that seemed very natural, didn't it? All right, here we go. Now, everyone wants to make a difference in this world. And Lipscomb University's Marriage and Family Therapy Master's Program specializes in training people to make huge differences in the lives of individuals, couples, and families. Now, whether you're a new college graduate, someone ready to make a significant career shift, or a minister who wants to expand the scope of your ministry, the Lipscomb Marriage and Family Therapy Master's degree offers a rigorous 24-month program that can prepare you to become a difference maker. Todd, do you think if someone had a marriage and family therapy degree, it would help over here? This sounds like perfect solution for a lot of people here and back home too. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict, would it be solved if everyone had a degree from Lipscomb University? I think it would. I How? think that's that could be the, the pathway that we need to follow. Okay, so located in Nashville, Tennessee, Lipscomb's Marriage and Family Therapy Program is accredited by the Commission of Accreditation for Marriage and Family Therapy Education, which means the program has the met the highest and most rigorous accreditation standards in the nation. To find out how you can become a difference maker, visit lipscomb.edu slash MFT or call 615-966-5237 and ask for Kathy Johnson. Jason, how we sound right now? Good, but I'm turning off the metronome. Okay, thank you for that. Okay, uh, Todd, how are you? I'm great. I'm great. So glad to be with you guys. Okay, so backstory. So a couple months ago, Jay calls me up and says, hey, I got an idea for you. And Jay, give him the pitch that you gave me. I don't remember exactly what it was, but I know I had like two life-changing experiences over here. It changed my faith, changed my outlook on the world with Todd and Telos Group. And Todd had told me there was another trip coming together. And he's like, do you know any pastors that uh, might be a good fit for the trip? And I was like, no, but there's this guy named Ouch, Luke. Come on, come on. <laughs> Just kidding. So I was really excited to see if we could get you on the trip. And so I, I get on the phone with you, Todd, and talk to you for like five minutes, and I'm, and I'm in. I was ready to go. So you have the five-minute pitch. Do you have, have you like crafted and perfected that over the years to like i can get pastors in in five minutes jason gave me some tips on how i should appeal to you basically. what, what tips yeah. were they do you remember he said listen to his podcast <laughs> read his book promised yeah and then and then that'll open up the door so. well I, I okay you you had me at read my book you had me at read my book uh, okay so you you have this uh this tells organization which we'll get to in, in a second but first let's kind of start with uh your story so jay tells me basically uh there's this organization it's run by two people one is uh, a Palestinian lawyer, and the other is someone who worked uh, for in Condoleezza Rice's office. You were there like oh five oh nine somewhere like that. Yeah, that's right in the State Department. Okay, so let's start that you you start off as an educator. Is that right? Did I was a, I was a teacher in a Christian school in Northwest Arkansas mm-hmm. in the state I grew up in. Got involved in politics, which brought me to Washington D.C. I spent wasn't one of your students. 
dads or That's something? right. Exactly right. I had, I had three boys, and their father was a state representative, and he ran for Congress. And I was interested in politics, and he asked me to work on the campaign. I did, and we won, and I went to work for him. So I spent 10 years working for the same guy. He was a congressman for four years, mm-hmm. and then a U.S. senator for six and that took us to D.C., and I ended up taking a, a job in the Bush administration as a political appointee at the State Department. Now, your parents owned a restaurant for two decades. That's right. Where did the—I the, know your love of food obviously comes there, because the, uh, the alternate title for this trip is Eating Your Way Through the Middle East. Eating that, Your Way Through the Holy Land. That's yeah, the Holy what, Land. Yeah, yeah it's, yep. it's pretty amazing. Where did the, the interest or love of politics come from? Also probably from my family, too. My dad was—both uh, my, my parents were involved in politics in Arkansas at the local level. My dad was the chairman of the Democratic Party. Um, I, I, I switched uh, in college. Uh, didn't tell him about it. For, How'd that go? Well, I didn't tell him about it. I voted for, for Reagan in 1984 when I was a sophomore in college, and I didn't tell him until 1990. So it took about six years to come out of the closet on that. And when you did, what did he say? Um, it, was, it was hard. It was hard for him. Um, and, uh, I mean, he was great about it, but it was, you know, like it was a— he was very committed to his sort of political point of view, and then I came out in a different direction. And so we had, we had some um, interesting conversations for a long time. Didn't in any way break any relationship, but it, I think it was just a challenging thing for him to see me kind of go a different direction. Um, and then uh, when, I, when, I, when I went to, when the, the guy I worked for ran for the Senate, then at that point he actually had to decide whether or not he was going to vote for a Republican for the first time in his life. And it wasn't, it wasn't even a choice at that point. I called him. I said, my, he's about to get in the Senate race, so he's going to be on your ballot. And he said, I'm all in. What can I do? And he oh, helped us out. And that's awesome. actually campaigned with him and helped him carry the county I grew up in for the first time. that a first time a Republican ever won that county before. Okay, so tell me how the, the jump went to get into the appointment. Yeah, well, I was on the Hill, and I got to, I got to Washington, and I, I felt like I sort of I came with a sincere faith but a pretty thin theology. So I wasn't... I, I didn't really know how to operate in that environment in the complexity of the world and that I was having to sort of deal with um, in, in, in government and in, in just in Washington, D.C., which is a very you know, diverse place. It was very different than the world I'd grown up in. And I went on a deeper faith journey, which really led me to embrace um, a kingdom of God theology in a way that I hadn't understood before. And, and it also just gave me a vision uh, for my work in the political arena uh, in the pluralistic public square to pursue a common good you know, approach to politics. So trying to work together, even across lines, people that you have differences with in a, in a, in a pursuit of the common good. And so, Compared to, like, yeah. if, if you're now common good before that, were you more like, just my party's good? I think so. I mean, I think I came pretty, with a pretty strong commitment to an ideological approach. Uh, and I also came from, you know, in Northwest Arkansas, I came from a pretty monolithic background. I mean, like, I came from a very Republican part of the country. A, very, a congressional district was very, yeah. very conservative. And so, uh, so I got there, and I, and I found, you know, sort of the degree of partisanship in Washington a, a little off-putting. And I wasn't sure what to make of that, and I wasn't sure what my faith required of me in that situation, too. And it really kind of, over time, as my sort of my faith journey went in a certain direction. It brought some tension between my the claims of my faith and the sort of claims of my political ideology, which I wasn't sure how to resolve that. But one of the things I really began to lean into was 
the way that as that, that that Christians called to serve in public service, like in government, are really called, like all of us are in different ways, to seek the good of our own city and the good of our own community and to pursue a common good. And that was really um, a, a, a way for me to kind of exercise my faith in a in a way that was appropriate for the public square because I wasn't, you know, I was. I mean, I'm, I'm serving yep. in government on, in a pluralistic nation and so forth. And so that led me to really pursue you know, an interest in human rights and finding a way in which you know you could work together across party lines to pursue that kind of an issue. Uh, my boss was a very conservative Republican from Arkansas. We worked very closely with two of the most liberal uh, members of the Senate at the time, one from Minnesota and one from uh, from. Um, Wisconsin and on behalf of human rights in China. Mm-hmm. And that was really the opening for me, this idea that we had a lot of things we disagreed on, but we found something that we could work on in common, mm-hmm. which that's what ultimately let me, in sort of long story short, to the State Department working on inter- issues of uh, international religious freedom for a couple of years in the Bush administration, which then I moved into this little policy planning office for the last four years of the Bush uh, administration, and I had a variety of um, things I worked on. I was the chief of staff in that office, but all these six years, I was I was uh, also in different ways working on issues related to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Yeah, and so we'll get into that. Uh, but you told me earlier this transformation from uh, did you say shallow theology? Is that was that your language? I, I said, I, yeah, I had a, a very. Th- I'll let uh, you. Critique your own religion. A That's sincere faith, but a, but a very thin theology, I'd say. You told me before, Tom Wright was big in that transformation. Absolutely. So you get yeah. introduced to him. Yes. Was it through the your new... Were you going to Christ? We were at... No, we were at the, it's called the Falls Church. Falls Church, yeah. It was, it was an yeah. Episcopal church at the time. Um, and it was it, first through John Stott, uh, mm-hmm. through the Christian Mission in the Modern World, which was a really seminal uh, sort of book for me. It's a thin little treatise he wrote for a Luzanne conference back in the 1960s, but it was really helpful in expanding my vision of of, of what really it looked like to live the gospel out in the world uh, and, and really reconciling this idea that, that, that evangelism and social justice are not competitive, but actually all part of the same thing. And then that opened me up to reading N.T. Wright and then the whole kingdom of God theology that I had never fully fully understood before became something that became very animating in my own faith journey and in my way of sort of living in the world. Yeah, so you're working for George W. Bush, right? W? I, that, I was in the Bush administration, okay. yeah. And so... You're, I wasn't working directly for, for George W. Bush, but I was a Like, how many pointy. handshakes were you until... Uh, well, I was... I, I worked for someone who worked directly for Secretary Rice. So uh, my boss was a direct report to Condoleezza Rice. Okay, so I watched The West Wing. Yeah. Which one were you like? I wasn't in the White House at all. You never so got over there? I Well, I, I was there, but I didn't work in the White House. I worked in the State Department, so I was many layers removed from the Oval Office, for instance. Uh, so I, But I was, yeah, I was a direct report to the policy planning director who reported directly. But you never to, had a scene where, like, the president has to see this, and you, like, knocked on the door and they I let wasn't, you. I wasn't you that never, guy. You didn't yeah, get to do that? Yeah. No, I could say maybe the secretary should see this, but I didn't get to really determine what the president saw or not. Sorry. Well. It would be more interesting, Let's I edit know, that but. out, because I would like to imagine that. <laughs> not edit out of the podcast, just out of my memory. I'm just going to feel like that. Oh, okay, so you're doing that, and then eventually, uh, time's up with, I guess, the, after you show your, did your time there. Like, it's prison. You did your time. Right. It had a sale, a sale by date on my head. It was January 20th, 2009. That was the day the Bush administration ended. Yeah. yeah. So I had, to, I had to find something new to do by then. They didn't let you just hang around afterwards? They did not. Yeah. yeah. What did you do with your office when you had to leave? Did you... 
I put things in a box and we turned out the lights and wa- walked downstairs and okay. said good, yeah, said no goodbye to all my friends. Like no, it was a pretty, okay. but, but you're getting out. And at the time, I overheard you say this earlier. You were thinking about going into the uh, private sector. Is yeah. that right? I had some. Yeah, I had a whole different sort of set of ideas that I was considering pursuing. But something had really laid a, a, a real claim on me um, earlier in my time at administration. I just didn't know what to do about it. And that was the uh, America's relation to what's going on here, where we are tonight in Israel and in the what, what made you get so passionate about this? You know, even from my very first time to visit here uh, early on in my time in the State Department, I saw pretty clearly that that this was a very complicated conflict, but that it had solutions and that um, the way to achieve those was through peacemaking and diplomacy and conflict resolution and that America's interests were on the side of seeing this conflict solved and that uh, that the the failure to solve this conflict or the perpetuation of this conflict undermined American interests in the world and in the region and that America because of who we are as a nation had an important role to play mm-hmm. um, but also that a lot of Americans care about what happens here they have deep you know connections to the place and they're passionate about it but they often channel they've sort of in many ways we've imported the conflict into our own culture into our politics what does that mean to our churches I mean, it's a, it, this is a foreign policy issue that functions more like a domestic political issue. So if you're running for Congress in the United States, you actually have to have a, you don't have to have a position on every foreign policy challenge, but this is one you have to have a, 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 a position on. Many churches organize themselves around activism, around, this con- around issues related to this conflict. And a lot of that, you know, act, that sort of passion is, is motivated by people who really care a lot but but often we ch- oftentimes we channel that activism into the kinds of things that make it harder to solve the conflict. And so what my hope was is that particularly um, uh, Christians in America could find a way to embrace a theology of peacemaking, more of a kingdom of God theology, and use that as a way to channel their passions into things that might help the people here better solve their conflict. Yeah. We can't solve it for them, but we can do things to make it easier or harder because of who we are as a nation and because of the amount of interest and influence we have here. Yeah. I, you get something? I was just going to say, like a, a mantra that I learned from you, Todd, first trip of mine, uh, politics is downstream from culture. I feel like I heard you say that like 87 times on that first trip. It, I, I think it's very true. I mean, you know, we, we can give speeches, we can uh, legislate things, but the, the way that you actually change things is through changing people's hearts and minds. And if you want to have impact in Washington, sometimes you start with the culture because Washington ultimately becomes a reflection of where the culture is. Washington ultimately becomes responsive to what the culture, where the culture is at, and what the what people in the in the country, you know, demand. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, so yeah, I think the way you actually take on a really difficult challenge like this is to create a different kind of approach in the country to change yeah. change the culture, tell better stories, um, and and really try to grab people's attention and hearts and minds in that way. And that ultimately can have can bleed its way into the political system as well. Yeah, honestly, I never heard anyone talking about this uh, issue, conflict, struggle in my churches growing up. In the Church of Christ, we kind of uh, didn't like join into some of the ways that the evangelical church has um, has joined in. And it wasn't until I started going to this kind of charismatic Baptist, non-denominational, interdenominational church when I was in college that I first heard about it. Mm-hmm. And I first heard people connecting 
uh, Genesis 12, 3, if you bless Israel, then you'll be blessed, and trying to go, well, this should affect our foreign policy. And I'd never heard that, and it didn't make any sense to me just because we didn't have, we had none of that. But a lot of this is connected to sort of like the dispensational um, uh, uh, eschatology that mm, some of the states have. It's it's predominantly in the states, would you say about that, that sort of dispensationalism? Yes. DTS, uh, as a Texas person, Dallas Theological Seminary was one of the epicenters of that. And so you're talking about how the church is actually, the way that we discuss this makes it harder for, for people over here. How can our conversation over there make it harder for people over here? Well, you know, it depends on how we sort of frame what's happening here, first of all. Um, but we often think of ourselves as either wanting to be all for one side in a way that's against the other. And the dominant way that the, that, that, what that looks like most, most, you know, normally within the American church is a desire to be pro-Israel, but to do that in ways that actually are anti-Palestinian. And there is actually a growing voice within a segment of the American church that, that really, instead of using a, a, an eschatology or a covenant theology, is using maybe a more of a social justice paradigm. And they want to be so pro-Palestine that they act in ways that can be anti-Israeli as well. Yeah. And so there's, there's, a, there's a mirror image of that too. But the point is that when we, when we choose to be entirely on one side in a way that's against the other, mm-hmm. then we are, we're just enrolling more people in the conflict itself. Yeah. Uh, after, you know, after being working on this for so many years... I'm more convinced than I ever that the only way that there's a good future for one group of people in this land is that there's a good future for the other. Yeah. It, it can't be a zero-sum game. So our work is really predicated in, on this idea of mutual flourishing, this idea that what works for one has to in some way work for the other, or it's just not going to work at all. And, and that's one of the things that I'm most impressed by this trip so far, and we're halfway through it, as the way that you blended both of these voices. And, and I think that, like, the theological undergirding that, like, Tom Wright, for example, even his stuff about um, Surprised by Hope, describes a much better reading of Genesis 12 and the idea of Abraham's offspring, which are, you know, fulfilled in Jesus. It kind of moves past sort of this dis- dispensational um, view of the end times, which maybe we can nerd out on another podcast and break that down. But what you do is it's not... It's not anti-Israel. It's not anti-Palestinian. It's it's pro both, and so you've been able to kind of hold the tension. Your your line that you keep going back to is that uh, two truths you can hold both truths even if they contradict each other. Mm-hmm. And so you can have us one night having Shabbat with uh, this beautiful family. This man describing his childhood where his uh, grandma is taken away in the Holocaust, and they're literally. I'm, I'm literally crying just imagining the pain that he's gone through and the sympathy and he describes flourishing here as his sweet revenge and i go i'm 100 percent for your sweet revenge in that way and then i hear stories of palestinians a man who literally had a rubber bullet stuck in his eye this morning and with tears in my eyes i'm going oh my heart breaks for both of these and how do you feel like you can hold both those together and not kind of uh devolve into this us versus them mentality yeah, it's. I mean, it's really hard, but it's it really it's rooted in that idea 
that it's just the basic understanding of, of neighbor. Like, I can't want for my family and myself and my tribe something I won't allow for my neighbor, even if my neighbor is my enemy, because Jesus took that understanding of neighbor and kind of blew it out of the water by, by explaining to us that we are actually even to consider someone that is our enemy or our adversary, our, our uh, neighbor as well. And so that whole idea is that, you know, like, that we we're we're sort of in this together, and in, unless we can find a way to live in that kind of relationship with each other, it's not, we're building something that that's that won't last. The the what I keep going back to is what the original design was. So if you if you really want to understand the story of Scripture, you have to really start in the beginning. You yeah. can't start with the fall and how broken the world is. We all yeah, know yeah. that, right? But you start with creation. And that, that beginning story is of shalom. It's of wholeness and mm-hmm. unity. When men and women are living together in right relationship with God and each other and the created natural world and societies of flourishing and justice and peace, that's the vision we kind of can draw out of the, of the creation story and what God intended. Yeah. That gets lost at the fall in the sense that the, the wholeness of shalom is shattered into mm-hmm. a million parts. But the whole story of Scripture, as I have come to understand it and think, believe this to be true, is that it's really a story of God's desire to bring back into wholeness that which, was, which yeah. is lost in the fall. And so the, the story of the prophets and the story of ultimately of Jesus coming and announcing a kingdom, that's, that's the restoration project. It's a rescue operation, as N.T. Wright would say. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, the, that's the work that we're invited to participate in. So that's the stuff that, that really turned my world upside down, this idea that my salvation is not some ticket to go to heaven when I die in some future time my salvation is to is an invitation to join Jesus in his redemptive work the things he's doing in the world right now he's inviting me to participate in that as an agent of reconciliation renewal and broken places and healing and and creativity and building and all those things that we get to do with our vocations that's the work of the kingdom of god right so if we bring that kind of a theology to something like this we understand that it that part of the creation order is men and women living in right relationship with each other and in Unless we're we're connecting all those dots, we're building something that won't last, right? Yeah. So so peacemaking is really predicated on this idea that we have to find ways to in the live together in the tension of a fallen world where we're not going to sort everything out perfectly. But I but we have to be able uh, to listen to someone else's point of view and make allowance for even things that we disagree with if in finding accommodation to figure out a way to build a different kind of future together. Yeah, that's good. I, as you're talking on this uh, trip, I was going, oh yeah, I'm picking up what he's putting down. And then when you let slip something about Tom Wright, how he, uh, I think you had this email inter- interaction with him and he kind of changed maybe some of your nuances about something. I was going, oh, that's why, because he's an NT Wright guy just like me. Like yeah. he's, uh, so you're influenced by that, and I, I greatly appreciate. It. One thing I didn't appreciate is uh, the other night we're having dinner, and you make a toast to Jason, and I'm like, you make this toast to Jay, and I'm like, man, I'm sitting right here. Uh, quick question: How long till I get a toast in my honor? The trip is not over. We've got about three more dinners, so okay. yeah, it could still happen. Okay, yeah. I'll, I'll hold out hope for that. Now, after you did that, Jay jumps in and gives this this beautiful toast to you. I'm going to make Jay recite it right now. You remember it, Jay? No, I don't remember it, but I'll say the sentiment. Is that fair? You just, just don't screw up the line. Just, okay. I don't know. Uh, I just, I think I wanted to say that uh, my first trip here in 2010 
with Telos was life-changing, faith-changing, um, and I'm really grateful, but also um, the guys like Todd and his uh, colleague Greg have taught me um, that when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called children of God, that I, I think one of the reasons Jesus says that is because nobody else will claim them. <laughs> because you're really asking for uh, a lot of difficulty when you try to walk a, a third way in the world that just refuses to pick a side, but rather root for the flourishing of everyone. And I've seen you guys deal with some of that yourselves, and I admire you all the more for that. Well, thank you. That, that means a lot. I mean, what, one of the things we're trying to do here, honestly, is in the beginning, we didn't, we didn't really talk about peacemaking in an overt way. We didn't use that language because these terms peace and peacemaking can sound very unserious, and, you know, sort of like rainbows and unicorns and bad poetry. And like, <laughs> that's, that's, that's the images that we can conjure up when we think about peace and peacemaking. But we've cheapened those words. The translation from, from the original language into English just really, it really you know, diluted the meaning. Shalom is this rich you know, concept that we, that we can barely even get our head around and, barely, and certainly can't really fully describe. But over time, as we've you know, taken a lot of people in these, on this journey and we've built kind of a community of people uh, around this concept, we've been more willing to use those terms in a way to try to kind of redeem them because the work of peacemaking is really gritty stuff. Like it's very difficult because we see people do it. And that's part of what we do when we're on these trips. We will expose you to some of the folks who are doing that work of peacemaking. And you will meet parents who've lost their children in this conflict from both sides. And they've come together to do the work of reconciliation with each other across the lines and then to be advocates for reconciliation in their communities. And, and this is really hard and challenging stuff to be able to extend re- for forgiveness and act in a spirit of reconciliation toward the other side when you've paid the ultimate price of losing a child. Like, I can't think of anything harder, really. And that's what, that's for me, what peacemaking looks like in this gritty way. So, I, so we've come to kind of claim that, that, that word even more uh, fully than we did in the beginning. So you've been doing this over a dozen years, like being involved in this. What's conflict issue? Struggle? What is the right word? Yeah, it's all. It's all. All, those all of things. that. Okay, yeah. conflict. Whatever. Um, dozen plus years of this, and you've got this line where you said uh, pessimism has the facts, and so dozen years of this, you still see the. Uh, I mean, the heartbreak. You still see the struggle. You still see the, the animosity, and maybe some of the ideologies which undergird the conflict itself. Um, how are you not pessimistic? How do you have even? Uh, a modicum of hope. Such a great question, and I get it all the time. But I, you know, that's the worst thing you can say to me as an interviewer. <laughs> just, I really, I, no one's ever asked me. Thank that you, before, I, Luke. Man, that's thank really. You. I'm gonna have to think about this for a minute. Well, you know, people <laughs> people do occasionally ask you when you work on issues like Israeli-Palestinian peace in a very you know sort of sarcastic way. Are you optimistic about how things are working out over there? If anybody with any sense of the reality could not be optimistic about what's going on here. And as we said earlier, the pessimists have all the facts. But that's not the scale that I've chosen to peg myself on, and I don't think that we, ha- that we really have to do that. Uh, certainly as Christians, we don't have to do that. 
so the scale that I often refer to is the one of hope versus despair. Mm-hmm. And if my choices are somewhere along there, then I know that I that hope is the place I've got to I've got to land as best I can. And what I also know is that we I, I have a hope. We have an eschatological hope. We know that we serve a God who is making all things new. We still live in the tension of the now but not yet world, but we serve a God who is doing the acts of the redemption in the world today and is ultimately going to bring things in his own timing into into the fullness that he intends and in the meantime we get to join him in that and so joining him in that is really the way you live in hope so hope is actually not an emotion it's not a feeling it's what you do you live and act in hopeful ways in order to open up the possibility for a different kind of reality and it starts inside to be honest so then this is very much henry now and but the when we enter into these difficult and complicated messy situations in our lives whether it's israeli palestinian peace or whether it's just working on a marriage like the good folks back at the at lipscomb are trying to do you're entering into yeah. these very difficult situations <laughs> in a spirit of uh, uh, in, the, in the way that God is calling us into it, we open up the possibility for ourselves to be transformed. Mm-hmm. And when we allow personal transformation to occur in our own hearts, we then open up a possibility that we can become an agent and a vessel of God's redemptive work in the world. And that's sort of the way that it seems to work for me. You bring people into these situations, you see them be transformed as they confront their own biases. As they, I mean, you meet people like that you're not supposed to be sitting across from. You, you, know, you go to places you're not supposed to go. You hear stories that are offensive to you or that are different than what you uh, thought you always believed. And you allow your own heart to be transformed by these experiences and by these human relationships and then you ultimately be, go on a journey that allows you to help, you know to participate in the in the work that God is doing in the world I think yeah I, I think the easier option is to become pessimistic and then just pick a side and just go I'm gonna be pro-palestinian and I'm gonna think you know all uh, all Jews are the worst and I'm not gonna go and sit at the Holocaust Museum I'm not gonna hear the stories I'm not gonna uh, hear the heartbreak that people have gone through or I'm gonna be pro-Israeli and I'm not gonna hear about the the plight of the Palestinians and I'm just gonna kind of go to one side or the other and then as an American I'm just gonna you know I um, I think this was you. you you talked about how sometimes these sort of like Jesus sightseeing tours can be uh, analogous to the uh, Good Samaritan story. Yeah. I, Do you say that publicly? Well, it's <laughs> it 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 sounds pretty judgmental, uh, but I can. I mean, it didn't, it didn't come across judgmental, but like the <laughs> metaphorical thing of like I'm just going to come here. I'm going to do my sightseeing yeah. stuff, and I'm going to have the the transcendent moment because I'm going to see the Sea of Galilee or or, or I'm going to see the the quote unquote birthplace of Jesus, and I'm going to ignore the current refugees that are right around me. And so I'm going to talk about the one two thousand years ago who was a refugee, but I'm going to ignore what's going on right around me. And and that for me, like the motivation is this is too hard for me I'm going to pick a side I'm going to stay there I'm not going to hear stories that contradict my simplistic narrative yeah and I think the the most authentic pilgrimage when you come to a place like that to the Holy Land is to not just walk where Jesus walked 2,000 years ago but to try to walk where he would walk today which means that don't just do your sort of religious devotional thing, which can be very meaningful. Like it, for some people, this is a life-changing experience to come and see the places where the biblical stories happen to walk where Jesus walked. But also it can be equally enriching, if not more so, 
to get off that pilgrimage route and actually interact with the Israelis and the Palestinians who live here today, who are caught up in the middle of a conflict and are basically living in a this sort of long-running, festering conflict zone in different straight different states of trauma, right? And so, if you if you interact with the people who are here, you're also really engaging in the real work, I think, of of pilgrimage, which is a spiritual journey, right? Hey, uh, Todd, I'm kind of curious. Um so you went from working in policy and government to launching a nonprofit to serve mostly churches but faith communities. Um, and you had a life of faith. You've been in churches. But all of a sudden, your work world opened up to where you're working with faith communities all over the U.S. Uh, I've been to the, some Telos gatherings where I get a little snapshot of the diversity of the church communities that you work with. Uh, theologically, uh, like the way they worship just and where they're from geographically. I'm kind of curious about um, what you began to see and learn when you transitioned from government work to serving and equipping churches and church leaders? Because I feel like you would have had fresh eyes on what the American church looks like just because mm-hmm. of, of the, the novelty of that experience for you. And I think uh, so, some, some of Luke's listeners work at churches. We both work at churches. So we're kind of like fish in water. But you were like jumping into the pond. And I'm curious what you began to see. Any surprises when you started... Uh, tapping into the American church like that? Now, Jason, that's a question I've been asked before. That's a very interesting question, I have to admit. How dare you? <laughs> How dare you? Come on, man. It, it is a good question. What I would you say... You already gave him a toast. <laughs> Isn't he more of that? What I would say is the... Um, I mean, my exposure... If you just had an exposure to American Christianity by living in Washington you could easily have a very jaded and cynical view of what American Christianity really cared about and stood for and was all about. But the the thing that's been really interesting and exciting to me in, over the last nine year, 10 years of doing Telos is the ability to engage with Christians from throughout the country and to see such a beautiful thing happening in communities all around America within the church, which looks very different than the than the segment of the church that gets represented in Washington, which seems, I think the church should, I think Christians should definitely be involved in politics. It's because politics is really just serving the polity. It's serving the good and the people. And we should be, we have obligations to be involved in politics and to care about issues and to participate and to, again, work for the good of our city and our country and to make the world a better place. But I think that, that often in Washington, Christians involved in politics Look often look like people who have made politics more of an ideology, and they then that has become so important to them, and they've missed so many other things. What and, do you mean an ideology? Well, I think I mean an ideology is just you know it's a it's a it's a, a way of seeing the world, and I think that um, the, there's a, I don't know if, if from an etymological sense if there's a connection between the word and I'm, did I say that correctly? I don't even have you're doing correct. great. I, if there's a connection between the word ideology and idolatry, but they they have come to seem very similar to me because I felt like it was it was a place I it was a thing that I had to wrestle with back a number of years ago mm-hmm. when I was again going on a faith journey that was creating tension between my faith and my politics. Uh, when I arrived in Washington back in the '90s, I was a very young guy. My faith and my politics fit together like a hand in a glove, very neatly. Mm-hmm. And as time went on, that it, it didn't fit as well anymore. And I wasn't I wasn't sure what to do about that. The tension was very uncomfortable for me. And and ultimately, I I remember just asking myself this 
posing the question like, well, if your faith and your political ideology, if your theology and your political ideology are in conflict, which of those has to be paramount, which is more important to you? And then when you frame it like that, it's obvious that my, my politics have to flow out of my can, faith. Can I jump in there, though? Because yeah. I'm just having like, like really visceral flashback to a, an ethics course in, in school, in, in grad school, where we looked at all this data, like guys like Howard Watson and others, like really um, overwhelming data that says that the average person when confronted with a conflict between their faith and their politics will choose their politics. So I just want to observe that like you're describing that like it's normal and I would think it should be. Yeah. But it's just interesting to observe that it doesn't seem to be. But Well, it doesn't seem to be if you look at how, I mean, how it often plays out in the world today. And, and that's been, it was one of my real frustrations. And so acknowledging the tension one temptation was to just to go to the other side and say, well, because I no longer am fully comfortable here, maybe I have to just totally switch teams. And it, and to be honest, it didn't make me switch teams. It just made me hold my politics a little more loosely. Mm-hmm. It made me, it, so it made me bring a different lens to how I engaged in public and civic life. And, and I think that's been the, that's been my biggest takeaway. And then doing that allowed me kind of to detach more from it and, and really engage in the work I'm doing now in a way that, is not always um, welcomed by either side. I mean, I have a good friend uh, who served on our board for many years who said that we have a message that neither the church nor the world wants to hear. <laughs> and sometimes it feels like that way. Like you really do feel like uh, there are times that, you know, neither, neither political party is fully comfortable sometimes with what we're doing. Uh, many Christians in the church don't like what we're doing. Uh, so this, this, it, it is an uncomfortable place at times. But at the other, t- other times, I feel like I'm, I'm doing very much what I, you know, am sort of called to do in this moment. And I'm living out as best I can see how to do um, what I think it looks like to, to sort of embrace this as my vocation. Yeah. And it seems that you know which order you are if you're a Republican Christian or a Christian who's a Republican, if there are times that you stand against your party. And if you're a Democrat Christian or a Christian who's a Democrat, if there are times that you need to be the prophetic voice to totally. your political party. And unfortunately like Jay was saying like that doesn't that doesn't always happen what helps you stand outside like what helps you say okay so I I I lean Republican and I'm gonna I'm happy to support the Republican Party but there are times I'm gonna step against them or speak against them like what are things that you would say these are practices that help you kind of differentiate which one comes first and which one is foundational well I mean that's a question I haven't been asked for either. So that's a, I have to think about that for a second. I don't trust you anymore. Yeah, I feel I know. like I, uh, but I, I can tell that's a real question when people are stalling by saying that because I do that too when I'm asked questions I don't know the answer to. So yeah. well, I mean, I think some perspective is one thing that helps me sort of sort that out because if you if you if you believe that the that that what you know that the kingdom of God is what what we believe it to be and the gospel is what we believe it to be and what we claim it is, then it has to be both transcendent of every time and place and culture and yet relevant in every time and place and culture. Mm. And if we have a political ideology in 21st century America that could somehow fully incorporate that, in our like in our particular like it wouldn't be what we claim it is it wouldn't be this sort of transcendent truth if if you could take the fullness of the gospel yeah. and distill it into a political ideology for 21st century the United States of America right that just like it, it it's not containable and that there's no way to fully approximate it's too that. transcendent right so like getting that perspective like it's always going to be bigger on a more practical level I mean one of the things that most influenced me back years ago was 
an Anglican priest friend of mine from my uh, church in Washington named Bill Haley, who is a very, he's, he's, he's a very articulate, he's, he's very, um, he's very good at articulating what he calls a, a, a full pro, a, a full uh, pro-life, you know, sort of approach to, mm-hmm. to politics. And so he says, if you only care about abortion, then you're not really pro-life, you're just anti-abortion. So if you're really going to be pro-life uh, and have a whole pro-life, a whole life ethic, then you have to also care about other issues, which might include gun violence and capital punishment and health care. And, you know, there's a number of things that might fall under that umbrella. And so it's really being willing to sort of look at the bigger kind of ethic and not just a specific issue each time and look at what is the, what is, what is the frame behind this. And again, for me, looking at a sort of consistent whole life ethic has been a really important frame that has sometimes made me like really, you know, comfortable with certain positions. Uh, Republicans have and and very much uncomfortable and opposed to certain positions Republicans have in general. Yeah. So I, I would answer my own question two ways. One would be the, the thing that you do this entire trip, which is I'm going to balance voices from either side out because you can't caricature uh, the other side if you actually know them, if your feet have been underneath the table with them. And, and you described one person who has never, or we listened to one person not too long ago who had never really spent substantial time with someone who is the opposite from him on this conflict. And so he, he can't imagine what they're like if he's never spent time with them. Right. And so I think that's kind of the, the ethos of this group is like, or this organization is let's, let's hear from everyone. And I had a second one. I just forgot what it was. Um, Oh, oh, here's the second one. So Richard Beck, I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He's a writer, friend of mine. He's, uh, he's in West Texas. He's a uh, psychologist as a professor, but he's also a great theologian, an amateur theologian. And he wrote a book called Reviving Old Scratch. And he says one of the benefits of having, uh, and maybe the, the pitchfork and the red tights is too much for you and you can't do the Satan that way. But if you have the idea that there is principalities and powers that our battle's not against flesh and blood. Mm-hmm. When you are in a conflict like this, you can never regress to thinking they are the enemy because Christian theology says the powers and principalities. Totally. If you want to say the devil or the Satan or the accuser, it, it always points the issue to being bigger than just a person. And once you hold on to that Christian principle that it's not them, that there is something bigger that's pulling us all away from the life that God intends for us, you can't demonize the person if you actually believe there is a demon or a principality that personifies all demons. Totally agree with that. And you can't do that. You can't demonize a person if you believe that everyone's made in the image of God. Exactly. If we're all image yeah. bearers of the God who made us, then, then that, that, and that's such an important point. So actually, I like your answer better than mine. So if you want to edit mine out, we'll just go with yours. <laughs> yeah. But that's such an important point because one of the things you learn most clearly in the work like this is the, the how, how, how disastrous it is to go down the route of dehumanization because once you've dehumanized someone anything becomes possible the gloves are off so we were in Yad Vashem a couple of days ago Jewish Holocaust Museum the the Holocaust Museum here in Israel and if you you know the story of the Holocaust is horrific and this museum tells it powerfully and incredibly it's incredibly well done and most of the time in the museum is devoted to the to the point where the Nazis had really began to begun to implement this program of genocide and applied all the sort of German engineering and industrial might and knowledge to, to a, the 
you know, a, a program of mass destruction of human beings. But the, to me, one of the sort of most chilling parts of the of the museum is the stuff that leads up to that. Exactly, because yeah. it didn't just happen out of nowhere. It was built on years of anti-Semitism, which incidentally we should own was largely used or was created by by people in the name of Christianity and Christianity weaponizing faith against the Jewish people and creating a culture for so many centuries that had done that. And so all these seeds are sown. And by the time the Germans come in, the Nazis come into power in Germany in the early 1930s with a program, it's the, they, the soil has already been tilled. The dehumanization work had so, had so sunk in that people began to go along with this horrific evil program, right? Mm-hmm. So that's a, the dehumanization is really important. The other thing I think of that when you say this is you look at the work of Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King was really about building the beloved community. And I'm, I've become more and more convinced that, the idea, that this idea of the beloved community is really the, should be an or, the organizing principle for our, for our engagement in politics. Because what King knew so well is that both black people and white people both suffered under the, the system of Jim Crow segregation. Yeah. They suffered very differently. So it was a much greater suffering for blacks than whites. But what he also knew was that his enemy was not the white oppressor. His enemy was the, unjust, the unjust system. And so he took that, that on. And it is kind of a principality issue, right? And yeah. so he's not demon. He had every opportunity to demonize some of these guys, these sh- sheriffs and governors who yeah. were dispewing racial you know, hatred and division and, and all sorts of evil, church bombings. I mean, it just you know, all this stuff is going on. And, and yet he time and again continued to call out the injustice with Without demonizing these people who were who were persecuting him and and his people. Did you hear today uh, at the Ten of Nations? Uh, what is the Daoud? Daoud, which is translation of David. David yeah. He talked about how uh, some came in, knocked down two hundred fifty trees. Trees take seven plus years to be fruitful. Just sort of two hundred fifty trees, which you can't like. I don't know the dollar figure, but it's a big dollar that affected them. And his response was. I can't imagine this is good for my oppressor either because they're going to go home and their kids are going to say, Daddy, how was your day at work today? And he's not going to feel good about it. It's that same sort of... Totally. It's the same thing. Yeah, exactly. And that's what true peacemakers do. And that's why those are the voices. They're they're few in number, but they're the people we have to learn to lean in toward and we have to learn to listen to because they show us the way out of these intractable problems, whether they're here in in the Middle East or whether they're in our own communities at home. There are those voices who understand these things. There's deep wisdom in that. And we have to learn to lean into those folks. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Jay, do you have any uh, final words? You got one final thing? You wrap us up. Oh, I, I, shoot. Uh, I, had, I, had, I had like a few more questions, but I, are we tight? More? More? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I, let me ask this question, and we can edit it out if we need to, because it's a totally unfair question. So we do a little tangent here. Um, you've, been, <laughs> you've been doing this for nine, not almost 10 years. Um, no, my, but seriously, my question is, and this is, it's not fair, so um, what's the closest you've come to giving up? Oh, man. What's the closest I've come to giving up? I, I've had a couple of moments, I'd say, even in the last couple of years, when at the macro level of politics and policy, this thing is, you know, so it seems so off the rails sometimes, and there seems no hope. And that's discouraging. But I've 
when I've been with some of the folks at the ground level who are dealing with um, real issues of just gross injustice and trauma and fear and just seeing how how big a mountain that there is to climb for them to have a different reality. Um, there have been a there have been a couple of experiences I've I've had just you know in more recent years where I've just left here and I have uh, flown back to my comfortable life in Fairfax County, Virginia, and just been so weighed down by that, and I didn't know where to go with it, and so yeah, so I've I've learned to sit in in that and lament and not just kind of jump to the to what the solutions conclusions are and ultimately I've I've through that the way I've gotten out of it is just to sort of double down and put my shoulder further toward the wheel and just kind of go deeper into the work um, and recommit you know anew to the idea that that transformation is possible yeah it may it may not happen in any way that I would love it to see it or on my timeline but 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 it's always possible. Redemption is always possible, and um, and just you know waiting for that. Um, yeah, I know we we might talk more in another episode too. But I, like I just got to say, like I um, like I've said it several times. But like my first trip here uh, made me a Christian all over again. But in some ways, like in a in a new way, it's not new. It's actually two thousand years old. <laughs> a way of being a Christian, which is to follow Jesus into broken places and to actually consider his teaching as a way of interacting with those things. Um, but it's been really meaningful for me. And so I think about you and Greg and others in Telos, and I wonder how easily it could be to get discouraged. I know you guys have taken some heat. That's why I say the thing about peacemakers being called children of God, because I know that even your work is an easy target, because um, you guys have sort of forsaken the easy tribes that you could be a part of. Um, so I just I wonder what road you walk uh, in your own sort of resolve and, and fulfillment and frustration and the moments when you throw your hands up in the air, like this is all worth nothing because it seems so hard. And the moments where you feel so rewarded that you know that it's making a difference. Well, you know, the thing Greg and I have really settled in on um, is our mission statement at Telos is that we form communities of peacemakers to help bring healing to intractable conflict. And what we've seen in the years of doing this is that that's actually a doable thing mm. in the sense that you, you give people the opportunity to go on a journey and they say yes to that. So like, you know, Luke doesn't know me at all, but because he knows you, he comes along on this trip. Or in spite he, of knowing me, he can't. Or in spite of knowing you, he can't, sure. right? Sure. And so, so you guys come on these things and you, and you open yourselves up and you go on the journey and you allow your hearts to be broken and your minds to be expanded and 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 yet you come out of this with a whole sort of new way to see the world and a and a new toolbox to draw from to think about some of the challenges we have at home and you go home and you stay on that formation journey because i really believe that this is for christians and we work with some non-christian communities as well but for the christians we work with this is a discipleship journey this is this is a this is a formation exercise right and it doesn't end here it it can begin here actually in in a in a neat way it can begin in the holy land and it gets and then we take that back with us and then we can stay on that journey 
ceremony and people get interested not just in in supporting peacemaking in Israel Palestine and the people they've met and the and trying to bring you know sort of a different way to see this and to talk about it and to act toward it but they also get interested in issues in their local community and they're concerned about issues in America about about challenges that we have at home in their own community in our country and they begin to apply some of these things there and so yeah it's it can be very discouraging but it can be incredibly encouraging mm-hmm. because we've had the opportunity to to go with so many people on that journey and stay with them on that journey and then see what it starts to look like when they figure out how to live it out in their communities back home. That's actually really encouraging and that's the thing I'm really grateful for. I love it. And, that, and that's one reason I'm here for a third time is because now I lead a community and I want to keep figuring out how it translates into a church in South Bend, Indiana. So yeah. like, I mean, not just about the issues, but just the deeper currents right. of that. Um, can I ask one more kind of just... Um, so I, some people are going to be listening like Gee, I want to go on a Telos trip. That's great. Not, not everyone can go. Um, are there a few voices uh, to listen to, books to read, whether it's specifically... <laughs> did you write about Israel-Palestine in your book, Luke? Yeah, but it would help. Okay, sorry. <laughs> I, 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 I give a pretty good push for your book on, on the app. Um, besides every listener that's ever listened to your podcast being morally obligated to buy three copies of God Over Good and leave a five-star review, which we've clarified, um, like, who should people start listening to and reading and paying attention to, whether they want to go a little deeper into Israel-Palestine, or whether they simply want to say, oh yeah, like, I think that might be pretty essential to our faith, but I'm not sure who to pay attention to to learn more about that. Yeah, well, I mean, you go to, the, to our website www.telosgroup.org. There's a resource page, and there are lots of books and articles and films and videos uh, that you can that you can you know choose from uh, and follow your own interests on that. In in terms of the the sort of kingdom of God theology, I mean, you know, you guys are know how to plug uh, N.T. Wright's books. So uh, <laughs> there's so many things that he's written that give uh, insight into this uh, that can be really, I think, really helpful. Um, and if you're interested in actually the the sort of theory and married with practice of peacemaking and learning about some of those principles, it's a guy named John Paul Lederach, um, who's a Mennonite scholar who was actually at the Croc Center at Notre Dame for a while, and he's been both a practitioner uh, of of this and a scholar for many years, and he's written some of the seminal books on it. And there's two other books I recommend um, by academics, one that are very accessible. One is by William Ory. It's called The Third Side. And it's about conflict resolution and it's suggesting that in every conflict situation, there's the potential for someone to play a third side kind of role. Mm. Um, and then there's the one by a, a psychologist named Jonathan Haidt, and it's called The Righteous Mind. It's a good one. And I, I think that's just a fabulous book. That's good. Uh, so this has kind of seemed a little bit like... Uh, like uh, summer camp like we're all together for a week and like or I guess longer than that and like have meals together like I haven't been around people like without a break ever like in my adult lifetime as much as this and uh, so I feel like what the fitting thing to do to kind of end the week would be like if you gave out like um like awards to the campers. Camp awards, yeah. Yeah. yeah so like on at, paper plates. And, yeah, yeah, something like yeah. that. So I feel like like what awards would you give Jay? Like what do you think his oh, award man. would be? Yeah. Um I've given, I would give Aaron Nequist the instigator award, so I can't quite give that to Jason, although he's been, he's, he's been, trying. Instig- he's, he's trying he's to trying. instigate. Yeah, yeah. He has been quite an instigator. I'm being a peacemaker, of course, but he's instigating. <laughs> okay. Well, I've got a few more days. So, <laughs> so the, the JV instigator, that's what you'd go no, with. For he's him? the good soul award. I mean, I just have such okay, a, a soft spot we in my heart that. for Jason Miller. Come on. We'll, I mean, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll edit at the instigator part. All right. Hey, thank you for. Hey, so what does Luke get? 
Luke gets something. What's Luke's award at this point? Best overall camper. I think that would be it. Best overall? That, I, I, I could go with that. Yeah, yeah. there it is. Final yeah. answer. No. <laughs> hey, thanks for the time. Uh, and by the way, the honking in the background was just a nice like, kind of ambiance of you know, what we have going on over here. There's a lot of honking. There's a lot of honking in the Middle East and especially in Nazareth tonight. It's, it's a festification out there. What is this? Like, it, what is it? It's like singing we're hearing right now. What? Can you explain what that is? Yeah, I think they're on some live on some big screen showing like uh, a dance contest or a, a singing contest or something like it's sort of like the Arab Idol or something like that. I think <laughs> I was hoping for something maybe a little more highbrow than like American <laughs> Idol goes to whatever. All right, Thanks dude. for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned. <laughs>